in the time I have been here, I have started a, a new portfolio for the for the farm um, of a limited vintage series, which is really exclusive to the property and generally only able to be purchased from the property. So it's small volume wines, more um, more site specific wines, wines out of the box, kind of kind of more personal wines and wines where I'd say they go against the grain. Today I'm talking to Brad Payton in South Africa. He's winemaker at Payton Verwachten. Hello Brad. Hi Petra, how are you? I'm fine and you. Wonderful. Good to meet you. It's lovely to meet you here on Zoom. You've got some lovely um, portraits at the back there in your background. Yeah, thank you. Those, those are some archive photographs. I love those old his, historical uh, black and whites that that you can buy around here in the Cape from from the old times around Groot Constantia and that in the Winelands. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I I love the black and whites. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're a bit mysterious as well. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> but Brad, um. Now tell me, it's uh, you're a winemaker and you're um, on Beiteverwachting, the farm. So tell me first, what was the interest in winemaking for you? Um, that goes uh, quite a while back, uh, a long way back. Yeah, I actually was introduced to wine <clears throat> by a family friend at the time. Well, still is, but uh, he was a winemaker himself from Germany and he was making wine. Uh, at a wine winery in Franschhoek. Um, and he took me on a cellar tour uh, one day. Um, I think I was 15. And um, we were in the barrel cellar and he was showing me how they do bottle maturation on the reds. And um, it all happened there. It was like a ray of light that fell into my head. <laughs> and I decided then and there, uh, that's what I want to do. Did you always have an interest in, in science? Because it's quite scientific also part of wine. Yes. So so I'm I'm a I'm not very scientifical. I'm not very theoretical either. I'm, I'm a lot of the guys in the valley in Constantial know me. Uh, I'm not a theoretical guy at all. I'm more of a practical guy and yeah. work with my hands and my feet and my mouth and my you know taste and all the rest of it. So um, if I need to know something or remember something, I'll go look it up in a book. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, yeah, it's I've always had a I've always had a, a a fondness towards nature and towards and that led me into farming um, and on fruit farms and working around the area when I was young during holidays and that and um, and then eventually led me to this family friend of ours who took me on the cellar tour and then I kind of just got I told him that's exactly this is what I want to do and um, I think 10 days after my last exam uh, that I wrote in matric I started an apprenticeship with him in his cellar and that lasted for about two and a half years yeah. oh I see that's very interesting that you so you did it that way Yes, I didn't want to actually study winemaking. I always believed in the beginning that one doesn't need to uh, study it to be able to make it. Um, yeah. 
And I kind of think it's like cooking. You know, we can all buy recipe books from all the best chefs in the world at a bookshop, and we can all use the same utensils and the same ingredients, but all of our cakes that we bake taste different, and they yeah. come out different. Yeah. So I think it's just really about how you feel about what you're doing. Exactly. And and I'm, I'm sometimes so glad when I hear some people just do it that way, because I'm also a self-taught photographer and I'm also, also a very practical person. So I, I learn much better by doing. Correct. Me you too. know, and, and I would rather make <clears throat> um, many mistakes and, but learn from those mistakes and, you know, just have the theory first. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what the journey of winemaking is all about. You're always learning. It's a constant learning process. Mm -hmm. And just when you think you've got, you've got it all waxed, uh, nature throws you a curveball and gives you a different vintage. And then you're sitting with a totally different scenario that you've never experienced before. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter how long you've been at one winery or dealing with uh, certain vineyards. There's always something new to learn. And it's also very humbling um mm -hmm. because as we as humans always think at some stage we've got this thing in grip and then mm -hmm. the next thing it kind of <laughs> takes you <laughs> takes your feet out it's it's almost like having a baby it just when you get them to sleep the next day then something else happens. <laughs> yeah so the, you think you've got a recipe down but it's just snap. <laughs> No. yeah but um so you actually have the advantage that you can think on the spot you know you can because you've got the practical experience or you think differently i think i uh, definitely you you hit the nail on the head there um and i think that's that's kind of what a lot of people th that know me they, sometimes it's a little bit frustrating because i deal with situations when they're in front of me um, the more I put my head around something that's coming up, the more I get worked up about it. So I try not to think about it until I have to make the decision. And, and I think, um, and that's why, that's why my wines are also every year slightly different. It's not, um, it's not because I'm, I'm, uh, you know, the, I don't work with a recipe, but it's really just, just about every year is different and um and if somebody says so what is your plan with this here and there i might have a plan that i want to try something new and there, there are scenarios where i wake up in the morning during harvest and i'll have a plan for a block that i want picked on the day and when the grapes are in front of me at the cellar door i change my mind really? and and uh, i deal with it in that way so mm -hmm. i try not blow things out of proportion before they're even in front of me. I try and deal with it on the spot. Mm. But uh, how did you end up at Peter Verwachten? Um, yeah, so after my two and a half year apprenticeship in, in Franschuk, um, through this family friend, winemaker, a German guy, he, he hooked me up. Um, to do a practical, a six-month practical in Germany um, with an ex-student um, um, friend of his from university time. And um, they had just started a new winery in Germany. So I went over for a six-month practical and it turned into nine years. So, wow. And then on top of that, I also ended up studying there while I was there. Um, 
So I did, in fact, do what I wasn't going to do, which was to study. Um, and, and yeah, so I worked and financed my living and my studies uh, throughout that time at one winery. And basically during that time, I also got to, because you can work north and southern hemisphere, also do some more harvests back in South Africa and in France. Um, and travel a little bit um, through Europe. But yes, I stayed in Germany for nearly nine years. And then um, towards the end of my time in Germany, when I was looking at coming home, um, I was doing a roadshow with uh, Woza, Wines of South Africa. And um, I'd done it once or twice. And on this specific year, I think it was 2003, um, one of the ladies that was also traveling on the roadshow, she said to me, there's, <clears throat> she knew that I was looking at coming home. And she said to me, well, Baden-Fewachtung is looking for a winemaker. And um, the owner is also on the trip. And um, I got to know him on the trip. And I told him I wanted to come home. And he said, send me your CV. So I did. But yeah and eventually I came home because he didn't reply and um, eventually when the time was I had to come home I came home and he still hadn't replied and then when I contacted him again then I <clears throat> sent in my CV again and then I was asked to come for an interview and I think through a series of um, there were a few interviews that happened eventually I came back for a second one where they offered me the job so and that was in 2004 and I've been there ever since, yeah. Well, that was then meant to be that you went there. Yes. Good that you wrote the email again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the funny thing was they didn't even look at my CV when I sent it because the questions they were asking me in my interview, uh, they could have all known the answer if they'd gone through my CV. But Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was one of, and, yeah. and I think, Knowing the way we work here at Baton Verwachtung and I see my interview and what I said to them and, and the way we kind of communicated was I'd said everything I needed to say and if I wasn't meant for the job, then I wouldn't have got the job. Mm -hmm. So um, I couldn't have done any more than yeah. what I've done there. So, yeah. And it's, uh, but now you bring something to Beiteverwachtung now because the winemakers have their own signature or their own wines and so on. Um, is it for you easy to work or, or do they, do they allow you? Do you have the freedom to do that? Yes. Um, so it's basically me and myself and the owner. Um, <clears throat> the owner last Mark, he runs the marketing and sales side of the property and and I run the seller um, and he doesn't really interfere with what I do um, he's very involved in in the business obviously yeah. it's, it's life as well um, but he allows me my freedom um, mm -hmm. there are obviously certain times where certain things need to be done by a certain time but when it comes to the wine stylistically um, he doesn't interfere with what I'm doing. I obviously include him and involve him um, with wines, new wines that I'm doing. And then he says, let's go for it. Or I think it's always been, let's go for it. Uh, uh, okay. So yeah. in the time I have been here, I have started a 
a new portfolio for the for the farm um, of a limited vintage series, which is really exclusive to the property and generally only able to be purchased from the property. So it's small volume wines, more um, more site specific wines, wines out of the box, kind of kind of more personal wines, and wines where I'd say they go against the grain, which is. I'm not a sheep. I don't like following long streams. So I sometimes like to be a little bit controversial without trying to be controversial. It's just that I don't like to follow trends or things like that. I like to try and do something different. Mm. And now tell me about these wines. What, what makes them then so specific? Um, there's, there's a, there's a few different reasons that, um, well, I use different varietals and yeah. all the wines in this series or this portfolio um, have names. <clears throat> the wines are not described on the label by any varietal. So um, this brings me to the point of pretentiousness in the wine industry and how people, whether it's wine gurus or, yeah, wine professionals that know all these things about how wine should taste, you know? Um, and yeah, I don't really enjoy that because wine is, wine is part of life and wine is a lovely thing. Part of socializing. That's what makes my job or my passion so lovely because it doesn't feel like I'm working when I'm at home and I'm enjoying wine with friends and family. And, um, it's just part of life. And, the the names behind the wines that I've done in this series um, really teaches one to to appreciate the wine for what it is, the wine that you have in your glass, before you learn about what is really in the wine. And it all goes back to also the old old Europe, the old world where you would be in a region, and it still is that way in in most of the older winemaking countries in Europe. Is that you when you are in a specific region you drink a wine with the name of the chateau or the name of the property there's there's nothing about a varietal on the label or anything and it takes you to have to know what region you're sitting in and what varietals they have planted in that area and then you would actually know probably what is in the blend or what type of straight varietal it is but then obviously you can ask the people or the proprietor or the winemaker what is actually in the wine mm -hmm. and this is really just about teaching us to enjoy or not to enjoy the the wine for what it is in the glass mm -hmm. before you come with a preconceived idea of sauvignon blanc has to taste this way because it says you know it's mm -hmm. not about that so a lot of these wines I do in a way that are very unusual and a way that um, maybe are sometimes frowned upon, especially when it comes to these competitions that one enters where my wines fall out of the categories because they could be marked as faulty. I don't know. Um, because they don't fall into a cat like a certain style, you know. Um, so these wines tend to be kind of out of the box off the beaten track. 
So it's like kind of. Yeah. I love that. I think this is wonderful because I think this makes people also um, just, like you say, enjoy the wine without all these things that it's supposed to taste or it's supposed to be this. I think it's it's great that you did that. Very, very lovely idea. And what is the people's reaction? It's generally the big eye reaction when you tell them what yeah. the wine is um, and in a positive way. Because the mm. wines are received very positively. They are slightly... Um, slightly more expensive when you look at our portfolio of wines um but they are definitely food wines um and yeah i think i would say 80 percent of the time they are received very positively because people would generally say we didn't know this varietal could be made in this way and um so they are appreciative of that and you know, some people that generally tend to drink trend-driven wines or the supermarket wines or wines that are all the same, just different labels. And um, this year it's vanilla, next year it's chocolate, the year after it's pineapple, aromatics, you know. So yeah. um, they taste the wines and they go, Geez, this is something where, you know, where do we get this or how do you do that? And um, yeah, really, it's just about making a wine mm. and making something interesting and what I believe good. And if I don't believe it's going to be good, and if I don't believe in the wine, I don't put it in the bottle. Yeah. And it's also like, I think sometimes when you just give people what they want, you know, if you, if we would, I was talking to musicians as well, where we talked about concerts and you always give the same things and you always do the same thing, then you get an audience who who cannot then change and cannot then change their taste. And there are so many different composers that they get stuck on the, just the specific ones, yes. you know, and yeah. this is what you are now doing is you're opening up a new world and opening up new tastes for people to experience. I, I think, Petra, it's all—it's also about you know when I started working here, um, I also made a decision to myself that I wasn't just going to be. I'm since since the farm, the, since the cellar in the modern day was established in the early '80s, um, mm -hmm. there's only been three winemakers, um, including myself, and I said to myself, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to carry on with in that in that profile i'm going to stick obviously in the larger picture of our portfolio there are certain wines that have a great following and they need to be in a certain way um and that's all very good we need those wines but then i said i'm also going to try and make a difference and try and improve myself and try and be innovative on the side so that when the people come and visit us they can also see we don't only make those wines that we are well known for. We also make wines that are unique and different. They're not released every vintage. I don't do them every vintage back on back because now, you know, it's, yeah. um, I do them in vintages where I believe they are great. And then 
then the more commercial wines, obviously, I do every year. And I've managed to, over the years where I've been here, also follow no recipe on the more commercial wines that we do. Whereas where I can use the vineyards and the, the, the weather and everything that we have, and still in those volumes make wines that the people have known for many years from our property, um, I still make them in an acceptable way for them that they carry on supporting us and carry on believing in what we do. The, the idea behind then, like I said, these, these uh, limited vintage wines is also then just to show people that we also do something else and something mm -hmm. else unique from this valley. And what are these labels now? Because I know labels are very, uh, a greater part of also of the winemaking, isn't it? Yeah, so we've, we've got, we've got um, so, so we're not big on huge marketing and flashy labels and things like that. Not mm -hmm. that our labels are bad, but we, I would say, put more effort into the wine than into, onto the label. Mm -hmm. um, if I had to look at it like that. And um, yes, we have people comment about our labels being sometimes a little bit behind or whatever. I, you know, that's all fine. But at the end of the day, for me, it's not about sellers who do wine wine tours every hour and they've got flashy stainless steel tanks and flashy glass panels all mm. over the place. For me, it's about what you have in the bottle yeah. on your table at home. And that's what you're going to remember. You're not going to remember the fancy stainless steel tank standing there that looks beautiful and it gets polished three mm -hmm. times a day. Um, so so what, what we've done in, in that, limited portfolio the names uh, the label is slightly tweaked in comparison to our premium brand um, so when they're standing on a table they all they are linked definitely but just slightly they look slightly different and um, I think on um, I have some pictures on Instagram of mm -hmm. certain shows and things that I've done where I've got the wines lined up next to each other but um a lot of the wines are named after certain instances uh, certain things that have happened or names of memories or and then okay, there's an some example? quirky funny yeah. things um i named uh well for example the very first one i did in 2006 was called rough diamond is yeah. called Rough Diamond, and I've only done three vintages of the Rough Diamond since I've been here. It's a Petit Bordeaux Malbec blend, which is unique, uh, I believe. There's not many of those around, especially not in South Africa. Um, and that was a wine that spent three years in 100% new French oak. Uh, and when I had these three barrels standing in front of me, I tried them uh, from the barrel before I took them out. Um, my jaw nearly fell off my face that's how rough this wine like really edgy uh, tannic huge structure and um that's the first that's the first name that came into my uh, okay. mind because i believe that with time this rough wine could evolve into something beautiful like a diamond uh, and that's where i came up with that rough diamond name and then there's then there was a Sauvignon, then there is a Sauvignon that I do called Maximus. The first vintage was in 2009 
and when I was standing in front of those barrels, um, before racking them, uh, I'd never done a style of Sauvignon like this before, and I tasted the wine, and it was huge and um, in a positive way, masculine and very. You know, and one of my favorite movies is The Gladiator, and in Gladiator, obviously Marcus Aurelius Maximus, uh, as they oh, call him yeah. in the movie, um, was the stature and this guy with this. You know, uh, that's kind of how I got to that name. Wow. Some people may find it silly or ridiculous, but these are no, this I is this is how it is. I stand yeah. in tasting wine and then I think of these things and and then sometimes I'll go to um last and I'll say what do you think and then you'll bat the name you won't like it at all and then you'll come up with something and then it's like an in-house competition who comes up with the best uh, name but I try and obviously I try and link firstly something very personal to the wine um and then there are certain wines from this limited range that are then where Lars gets involved and he says, okay, this is a cool name. Maybe we should do that. And then, and then we ping pong it to each other the whole time. Yeah. And, and you win. Yeah, and, then, and then we come up with a name. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but I think it's lovely that you can, where after you've tasted it, because you are the maker of it, that you can make this associ association. Yeah. I think it's like tasting wine in a glass. And, you know, I'm not a big guy on descriptives when it comes to tasting wine. Mm. Um, but it's basically like you'll put something, whether, whether it's a, something you've cooked or a fruit you taste for the first time or a spice you use for the first time, the minute you got it on your palate, maybe it sparks a memory or something you think of or... It, it tastes like something else that you've tasted before, you know, and that's basically really what it is. It's there's no scientific explanation behind this process. Yeah. It's yeah. really just when you standing there on your own and tasting the barrels innocently and yeah, these things just happen. Yeah. And I think also for people, because you say you don't, um, the, these wines can only be bought at the property correct yeah and isn't that also amazing that people can then have that experience of being there and and tasting the wine and then buying the wine from there yeah that's that's also an advantage of selling it only from the property because then our tasting room staff are also i go through these things with them as well and it's basically a hand sale if you would to be if you had to be in a wine shop selling this bottle but at the farm they get to taste the bottle the wine and their inquisitiveness on this weird flavor or characteristic is then um explained to them by whoever's helping them at the wine tasting and um when i do some road shows or some tastings in the trade with some restaurants or some some chefs that do some really exquisite food uh, there are certain restaurants that put these wines some of these wines on their list because these are sometimes also chefs that create cool and funky and different styles of dishes and look for food wines like this that are kind of a little bit crazy um that just spark interest of people who love new things and, and different things.
I think this is amazing. I'm coming to the farm one day and to come and <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope so. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not good on Zoom, so uh, it'd be great to meet you if you, if you had to come. Yeah, to oh, definitely. I love, it. I love things that are like this, so much individuality and and so much, uh, so much thought into that. And I think it's also this thing where it's local, you know, it's it's there. You have to go there to experience it. I think this is wonderful. So well, you are you, really uh, in touch in touch with where you are, with this farm, yeah. with this, with the vineyards and so on. Yeah. Mm. Um yeah, that's it was like that first interview that that I had you yeah, basically said this is where I want to be. And uh, yeah. I think I couldn't imagine working anywhere else in the country as this position um, as a winemaker and uh, and don't really want to be anywhere else. This is this is where I want to be. And um, and as I've learned over the years, um, you know, in the mid '90s, that was very trendy. There was this term "flying winemaker" in the middle of the '90s uh, internationally, where renowned winemakers would fly around the world to different sellers who could afford them to go there and would pay them large sums of money for them to come into the cellar for a season make the wine and then they'd fly off to another country in the world to make a wine somewhere else and that fad or trend came and went at um, went as fast as it came because um, it's really about knowing your sights yeah. and flying winemakers who travel between uh, yeah you've got to know your vineyards Petra and that's that's the secret mm-hmm. even after nearly 19 years here I like I said I'm still learning and um, the minute you think you know it all like I said your feet yeah. are swept from under you and you start at ground zero again. So um, I believe in, maybe I'm very old school in that way, um, mm-hmm. but I believe in knowing your site and you can only do that with time and not in three years, not in five years, not in 10 years. It's, I think it's a, an, a process of evolution. It's like climate change, you know? Yeah. If I had to look at yeah, the way the weather in the time that I've been here, even in the the way the reds ripen, et cetera, et cetera, it's slightly different. And yeah. Well, I spoke to Etienne Nietling, um, uh, who, d- who does the research on the uh, global warming and the effect on the vines. And this makes now completely sense. Also, what you're saying is that, you know, that, if you know your site and if you know the vines and you know approximately the climate, then you also understand when things change and you also understand how adapt to how to adapt to this change. Yeah. It's yeah. it's it's a learning growing, it never stops. So yeah. what's what makes our profession um interesting? Mm. Well never the same. Yeah, no, you've you've really you've got a very interesting story. But now, um, tell me, what is your wish for the future? 
Jess, that's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to always love what I do. And, um, yeah, I think, hope that my children um, one day also find what they want to love, what they want to do. And I hope that we can carry on making great wine at Baden for Wachten and making great wine for Constantia and, yeah, getting our name out there as a South African wine growing region and always trying to improve that's that can never stop you got to just carry on going yeah. and appreciate every day that we get to try and do that mm. and your children are they are one of them interested in wine making okay you know they're at the age where <laughs> there's a lot of things that interest them oh, okay. my son's 12 and my daughter's nine so okay. they yeah. They're in a bit of everything at the moment, but yeah. they, they get stuck in with me and harvest in the cellar. Really and um, yeah, they they love it. Always got to give them the thing that tweaks their interest, you know? Yeah. So always showing them something different and um, they enjoy it. Yeah. From sugars in the vineyards to punching down skins to pumping from tank to tank or really oh what a what a, a great opportunity that is for them that they can experience that yeah. just about the experience you know just about yeah. showing them and then that's all you can yeah. do the rest is up to them eventually yeah no that's true and it's lovely that they learn through nature because it's all natural processes by the way so you you probably also work very organically there on the farm um, I'm not a huge, I don't know if this is going to shock you, but I'm not a huge fan of that term organic because mm -hmm. I believe it's been abused, yeah. um, all around the world. And, um, and it's basically just a marketing term these days. Um, it's very difficult, Petra, to farm organically, especially in a very small area like this, um, which may sound strange, but we're only a few farms in Constantia and we're all on top of each other. Um, and can one really farm organically? You can try. We've got one certified organic farmer in Constantia. And yeah, it's, it's very difficult. Um, mm. we, we do our bit for nature and we try work um, and try to be a sustainable farm as far yeah. as possible there are certain times where you need some help and mm. unfortunately that is just that way that is reality and um, yeah. it would be nice to say we do everything for nature and mm. we don't harm anything or do anything that's you know frowned upon but in reality there's there comes a time where you need to make a call and then you do what yeah. you need well, it, this is also interesting when I spoke to Etienne um, about this and he said sometimes people think they're doing something organically, but they're actually harming, doing more harm, um, you know, so it's it's really balancing and seeing where, where you, how you can make your footprint, um, yeah. you know, as, as uh, less damaging as possible. Yeah. yeah. yeah mm -hmm. I think we've, I think we've, 
I believe everybody's just got to do their bit and yeah. you've got to try and do your bit. You know, they are obviously in every industry, there's the, the people that don't give two hoots about that. It's mm -hmm. just about money and about, but obviously us being more involved in nature, uh, working alongside nature, you also have to take that into perspective. And we're, we're able to do that because, um, in a lot of cases, we are, are able to do that, but you need a balance and you also need to, the way the climate is and the way things are happening around us, you also need to make sure you get a crop and, yeah. um, you know, whether it's birds or whether it's monkeys or whether it's diseases or whether it's, um, yeah, we just have to, you know, if we weren't sustainable or, um, if it wasn't viable we would have to close the doors so mm. yeah we do our bits definitely mm. but now i have one last question for you so yes. um can you do a shout out uh for a restaurant or a coffee shop that you visit frequently i think somebody already did a shout out <laughs> to your to, the, <laughs> to your farm's coffee shop um Coffee, uh, what is the coffee block? Coffee block, yeah. Yeah. So you so have that, to do another shout out now. Okay. <laughs> I, I would do a shout out to, does it have to be linked to a farm or does it going to be? No, no. Anything in food, your area. The, the food barn in Nuaduk. Oh, okay. That's, yeah. um, that's a small, call it boutique restaurant um, owned He's the owner and the head chef, Frank Desjero. He, he used to work in the Valley, also on one of the properties before at a very well-known restaurant. And he, um, I think it's more than 10 years ago now, he opened his own little place just on the other side of the mountain, yeah, 10 mm -hmm. minutes from here. And mm -hmm. um, makes some really, really great food. And mm -hmm. he's a cool guy as well. Oh, and he's hands-on. And he's in the restaurant with his customers, got a lot of regulars. His food's really good. French guy, but living in South Africa for many, many years. Um, and yeah, yeah, really, really good restaurant. The Food Barn in Nuaduk. Food, food Barn. Okay. I'll put the link um, in the description, the link to their website. Yeah. And tag them. But um, yeah, this was so lovely to talk to you, Brad. Thank you, Petra. So, Same. So, uh, it's very interesting. And as I say, I'm coming to Beite Verwachtung, definitely. I'll, right. I'll make the round there. Fruit Constantia Beite Verwachtung and um, Constantia Glenn. <laughs> you do that. Maybe you'll get us, the three of us together as well, and we can um, give you a, a, a tour of Constantia. Oh, that would be so that would be wonderful. So I mean, Bulla and Justin get to hear this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I they mean, know. I've got the, the the invitation now, so they'll just have to pull in. Correct. <laughs> okay, okay Petra. Have a lovely afternoon. Thank you, you and, too. Lovely meeting I'll, you. Lovely meeting you too, and I'll I'll see you guys soon. <laughs> okay, Petra. Okay, bye. Well,